BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thousands of people participated in rallies up and down the state over the weekend, calling for a stop to anti-Asian violence following the shootings in Atlanta that left eight people dead, six of whom were Asian women. This comes as there has been increased violence against people in Asian communities here in California in recent weeks. In San Jose, that's led leaders in the city's Japantown neighborhood to call on volunteers to serve as part of a community patrol. A retired San Jose police officer is leading the effort, which started with a volunteer orientation and training over the weekend. He tells the Mercury News it's important for the volunteers to understand how to safely observe, record, and report suspicious activity. In the debate over criminal justice policies and reforms, the desires of crime victims and survivors are often invoked. But as California rethinks many of the tough-on-crime laws that led to record incarceration rates, those survivors don't always speak with one voice. With a closer look, here's KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos. Tony and Terry Lopez's world came crashing down around them on January 13, 2020. Their 20-year-old son, whom they call Lil Tony, had been shot in Los Angeles's San Fernando Valley. He died the next day. Here's Terry Lopez. He was such a beautiful soul. He had a great personality. Everybody like was drawn to him, his smile, always looking out for people, caring about people, considerate. Ten months later, two brothers were arrested by Los Angeles officials. The district attorney charged the alleged shooter a 16-year-old as an adult. The Lopez's believed he could face decades in prison. But then a new district attorney, George Gascon, was sworn in. He campaigned promising to decrease incarceration and immediately moved to limit the harsh sentencing practices of his predecessor. Here's Tony Lopez. When he got sworn in, they automatically put a halt to any juveniles being transferred to adult court. Under state law, people charged with crimes in juvenile court can only serve until their 25th birthday and can qualify for earlier release. But to be let out from three to five years is like totally a slap in our face. The Lopez family feels burned by Gascon's new policies, but the truth is this debate spans far beyond L.A. California has been moving to restrict long prison sentences for the past decade, and recent law changes have taken particular aim at limiting juvenile punishment. The changes have sparked debates about what victims want and need and who speaks for them. On one side are the groups that have traditionally represented victims' interest in California. I think when somebody's been a victim of a crime, they do want to see justice done. Nina Solarno-Besselman is executive director of the three-decade-old Crime Victims United, founded after her sister was murdered. It's historically been aligned with law enforcement and helped push many of the state's tough-on-crime laws, including harsher sentences for juvenile offenders. There's an accountability and a justice component that seems to be getting forgotten these days. For a long time, Solarno Besselman was among the loudest voices advocating for survivors of crime. But in recent years, other groups have emerged with a different approach, focused less on prison sentences and more on crime prevention, rehabilitation, and support services for survivors of crime. 
Tanish Hollins is executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice, a pro-reform advocacy group that has built out a national network of more than 10,000 crime survivors. I come from a community where the majority of us are not recognized as crime victims at all or survivors at all. Hollins is herself a survivor. Two of her brothers were killed by gun violence over the past decade in the largely black San Francisco neighborhood they grew up in. She notes that most victims don't get any chance to demand accountability. State data shows in the majority of violent crimes over the past decade, including her brother's murders, no one was arrested. So I think it's critical for us to have a voice in this conversation. Black and brown communities and disadvantaged communities experience the bulk of trauma and crime and violence, and they're the least resourced, the least responded to. Holland's group recently conducted a poll of victims of violent crime in Los Angeles County, which found most survivors support rehabilitation over punishment and say they need help navigating the system. I go back to my moment of losing my brothers and, you know, what we needed most in that moment. What we needed were people that were compassionate. We needed people that could give us the insight and understanding of how the system works or doesn't work. District Attorney Gascon says he wants the help of a wide range of survivors' voices to shape local policy and has put together a victim's advisory board to help. For the California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. The rate of overdose deaths tied to synthetic opioids like fentanyl has risen by more than 500% over the last three years in California. That's according to a recently released report. KQED's Holly J. McDeed has more. The report comes from California Health Policy Strategies, a consulting firm based in Sacramento that focuses on healthcare policies. Conrad Franco with UC Davis is the report's author. He says overdose deaths in California have been rising rapidly since 2015. That's even during times when overdose deaths in the rest of the country began to plateau. Now it's growing at a much faster rate than the rest of the United States. And I think that should concern people. The research shows fentanyl, a synthetic opioid up to 100 times more powerful than morphine, is largely to blame. David Panish is president of California Health Policy Strategies. What is clear is that there's been an increase in the flow of fentanyl into into California. And when you uh, overlay that with people who already have an underlying addiction and are using Uh, It's like pouring uh, lighter fluid on a fire. The report shows Native American and African American people are dying at the highest age-adjusted rates. And Lake Mendocino and San Francisco counties were the hardest hit by the overdose crisis. For the California Report, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Let's turn to education. As pandemic restrictions ease, California's public schools are starting to welcome students back to classrooms for in-person instruction. But are reopenings happening fast enough? Is it safe for teachers, students, and campus staff to come back? And are teachers' unions playing too big a role in making reopening decisions? The California Report talked about these issues with the state's top education official, Tony Thurmond, California's superintendent of public instruction. Our first question, what he expects to see happen in California schools by the end of next month. I can tell you what I've heard. Uh, most districts have have said that they were going to open between now and, and mid-April. And so it seems like by the end of April, we'll see a very robust um, opening schedule uh, for school districts. You know, the California Department of Education manages three schools. Um, and we, too, are working on a kind of mid-April time frame uh, for how uh, in-person instruction returns to those schools. We have kind of a, 
additional consideration to work through. Our students live on campus during the week. We have residential programs. And so we think there's a, a higher threshold of concern, but we are working with scientists and doctors who have all kinds of experience and epidemiology to help us. I, I think that we're going to see, um, you know, just about every school district, at least in some kind of a hybrid by mid to end of April, certainly by early May. Uh, although I did hear that there's a school district in the, in in, um, in Pittsburgh that has said that the, for the rest of the year they intend to be in distance learning, that they felt that it would be disruptive uh, for them to do in person. And I, I, I believe they're also trying to honor what many of their families have asked for. But I think by and large, people have been clear that they want kids back, that the benefits to being in person. Um, I think we're gonna see more and more schools open, uh, uh, certainly um, by, the, by the end of April. Um, and when you say that, are you talking about K through 12 or mostly K through six still? I, the high I schoolers mostly, and middle schoolers I are gonna think, have to wait. Sorry, I apologize. I think mostly K through six. I, I think, I mean, I, I'm always encouraged when I hear middle and high schools that have opened. It seems to me that most schools have been working on this in a phasing in kind of way, starting with the lower grades first and then stepping it up. You, you know, we're doing the same. We're looking at sort of a mid-April for our schools uh, in elementary school grades. Our schools are K through 12. And then sort of past mid-April, we're looking at some dates for our middle and high school. I think that's how most districts are approaching it. But I, you know, even just in the news, I hear reports of, of middle schools that have opened uh, for in-person instruction. And we, you know, I, I think people are looking for ways to make that happen. Yeah, and I also wanna underscore something. Although you are the superintendent of public instruction for the state of California, you don't have some magic switch someplace to turn on a school system and say, go back to school now, right? Thank you for that. I was just thinking about a neighbor the other day who literally yelled across the street to me and said, hey, when are these schools going to get open? And I, my response was a question, which one? And he said, well, all of them. You're right. You know, I think that there's a, a, some kind of an expectation that I should be able to get all 10,000 schools open. You know, my position is not structured that way, but, but I accept that people really want to see them open in person. And what I try to do is what can we do to help them? You know, we're talking a lot about rapid COVID testing. We've been putting on webinars to show districts how to, connecting them to experts. And so even though my position doesn't, isn't structured in a way that I have the magic button to say they're open, you know, each of these districts, all thousand of them have a, their own school boards that make decisions. We're trying to be helpful in the facilitative role to help them to get open safely and to stay open safely. Keeping in mind that you got a lot of your support and funding from teachers unions when you were elected to office in 2018. So keeping that in mind, do you think unions have been all in all a help or a hindrance when it comes to getting schools open as soon as possible and safely? I think if you listen to the message, union members have just said that they are concerned for their members, especially those with underlying health conditions. And I think they've said, this is what we wanna see in place before we can come back and feel safe about that. You know, for me, this has always been about decision-making and I've engaged in hard conversations with unions, school district leaders and mayors about how do we get school reopened? This goes all the way back to October. I was convening meetings with all these groups to say we have to find a way, but make it based on science. You know, clearly unions have been really articulate in expressing their concern. There's no question of that. But one of the things that's interesting I looked at something that they were advocating for in the fall 
and that was weekly COVID testing. And I started asking around about that. And people with medical backgrounds said, yeah, weekly COVID testing is the thing. And so when I made my proposals to the governor in the, in the late fall, that was the centerpiece for me, weekly COVID testing. And so, you know, I guess it's mixed, you know, um, unions have been articulate about their concerns. I still think that, you know, I, I did hear cases where some districts just sort of threw their hands up and said, well, we can't, we can't do anything because the unions have said no. And I, you know, I, I was a school board member and I just feel like it doesn't work that way. You can't ever stop trying and talking. I, I don't think that bargaining should be the reason that kids aren't getting in-person instruction or any other resource for that matter. And I just, I, you know, I reject the notion that anyone who says, well, because there's opposition or concerns, we can't do anything. I, I just think that leaders of districts can, but I understand it. This is, again, this is the toughest thing we've ever experienced. And I think it's been difficult for school district leaders, union leaders, parents, everyone to understand what is safe to do. And can we do this without causing children's harm? Uh, until now, the research was mixed, but now we have very clear research that says we can do this and we should move rapidly accordingly. So would you also say, especially to frontline teachers and also some union officials, that you know perfection is impossible, there's risk in life. When you come back to the classroom, there's going to be whatever we do, there's going probably going to be a little bit of risk like there is for the supermarket worker or some other essential worker. Would that be something that you would say to teachers who are returning to class? That would not quite be my message because that risk is greater for some than others. And unfortunately for some, COVID could mean their death. And so for me, I'm always thinking about, I have thought repeatedly throughout the course of the pandemic, is this safe to do? And I have to tell you, until the recent research has come out, there are times when I was pushing forward but still had fears and doubts. I don't wanna see anyone's child be impacted by health consequences. And I certainly don't wanna see anyone else. I mean, I'm a person who has underlying health conditions and I'm just aware of what that means, especially for communities of color and others. And so I just think this has been hard to know what to do my message would not be, hey, you know, you never know, because I don't, I don't want to come off like saying, well, just take a chance when we know that taking a chance for some could have the most serious consequences. Instead, my message has been consistent. Schools will be open in person when it's safe to do so. And now we have the most and the best information available about when it's safe to do so. We have a president in the White House who has accelerated the, the, the manufacture of vaccine doses. That was not the case. I feel like I, like many, was waiting for the doses that President Trump promised in December. I felt like, okay, that's our signal. We can start to get open right about then. I really thought we'd see opening early spring, January, February. But when those doses didn't show up, it was a major setback. Now, where we are, 400,000 educators in the state have had access to the vaccine. You know, there's resources from the governor and the legislature um, on a plan that I help to support that will provide resources for more COVID testing and offsetting learning gaps. Uh, we are where we are, but I think we're in a position to accelerate and move fast and move forward. And Superintendent, there has been some criticism of you recently that you haven't been as visible as you once were earlier in the pandemic. First off, do you think that's fair? Secondly, if that's been the case, I mean, do you want to change it? And do you want to be more kind of out there and front and center when it comes to campus reopenings? You know, since March 13th, we've done everything that we can to help our schools in every single way that they need. We've helped them to get 
PPE to 10,000 schools. We've you know, seen school districts without computers and internet. We've moved hundreds of thousands of devices and billions of dollars to help our schools get access to those things. We provided training to our educators on social emotional learning, how to make distance learning better. And of course, we've done the work to help get the $2 billion for the COVID testing that I think is the centerpiece to the ability for our schools to get reopened. I understand that people are frustrated, but I do not believe that there's any message that I can provide you know, without the resources to get the job done. And that's where I've been focused on working with the governor and the legislature to get resources and nonstop talking to school districts, getting their feedback about what they need, amplifying that to some of the policymakers. You know, as you pointed out, my office doesn't give me the ability to tell the districts what to do or push a button, but we've worked nonstop to be able to help school districts get open um, safely and to get the resources that they need. And we'll continue to do that. We will not stop and we'll continue to do that. And as I said, uh, we've done all that while we've seen some of the highest rates of infection starting back to, I would say, the opening of school, meaning I brought all the unions and the administration groups together in June. We created guidance. I facilitated personally conversations to help support reopening, and we created guidance for reopening that we provided. But by the time August and September rolled around, the case rates were just so high. And with the hospitalization rates getting so low, it became clear our whole system had to move into distance learning. And so people can make criticism because I get it. This is a frustrating time. People have the right to be frustrated. I would just say that we're doing all that we can. And I don't think it's a fair characterization to say that I'm taking a backseat just because my job doesn't give me the ability to sort of make these things happen. We're leaning all the way in and we'll continue to do that. Um, and, and we're not gonna sit here and take credit um, because we still have a lot of students who have a lot of need, but we've helped provide 600 million meals to our students during the pandemic. We've been busy doing the work and I'm one of those people, I don't always think that I have to get out there and be talking about all the things that we're doing unless we have something major to say, then I, then I wanna do it. But, but I understand the frustration and, and I want your, your, your listeners to know that we've been leaning in all the way and we'll continue to lean in all the way to help in any way. I personally raised $5 million to support programs that the state doesn't offer for family engagement, for getting computers, for helping our families with social emotional learning. Uh, we're just manufacturing responses because we don't wanna tell our students and families no, um, even though there are limits to what my office allows, we're just looking for ways to go above and beyond that. And we will continue to lean in in that way. All right. That is California's uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman. Thank you so much, Superintendent. Thank you. Along California's more than 800-mile-long coastline, there's only one state beach where people are permitted to drive on the sand, the Oceano Dunes in San Luis Obispo County. But last week, the California Coastal Commission voted to ban off-roading there. KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb says it was a decision four decades in the making. The Oceano Dunes State Vehicular Recreation Area is nearly six miles of coastal sand dunes open for dirt bikes, quads, four-wheelers, you name it. Some two million people a year do so, but there are environmental impacts to endangered wildlife. Coastal Commissioner Carol Hart says all that traffic also negatively affects residents that live nearby, many of whom are lower income. They don't have the money to move. We've heard that in testimony on other occasions. 
It's not like they can just get up and get away. And their kids have asthma. They have asthma. It's, it's, it's very serious. She joined her colleagues voting 10 to 0 to end off-roading at the site in the next three years, pointing to habitat loss and degradation of traditional northern Chumash land as well. But there will be a hit to business, from ATV rentals to hotels and local restaurants that serve tourists who flock to the Pismo Beach area. We all know that those businesses, it will impact them. Valerie Mercado is with the Pismo Beach Chamber of Commerce. And coming off of COVID just is that much bigger of a blow for them. The chamber and other groups say they're currently exploring their legal options. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb. And that is the California Report for Monday, March 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash adapting care. Personal Capital helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years. Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.